All right. Hey, welcome to day 76 of Journey Through Scripture. Today, we are going to be looking at Numbers chapter 5, verse 11 through the end of chapter 6, and then Proverbs chapter 7, verses 6 through 27, and finally Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Okay, let's begin with Numbers chapter 5, uh, picking up in verse 11. So this is um, a bit of a a tough uh, text to understand. Uh, there's some things in the Old Testament that um, are difficult, and uh, this one uh, certainly has posed several different challenges. For one thing, um, it one might get the impression from this that uh, this is sanctioning a jealous husband to kind of mistreat his wife or, or make her go through some sort of shameful ordeal. Um, and then moreover to others, it smacks of magic uh, as if there's this this potion that she uh, is supposed to drink and, and all the things will be revealed. I think both of these things are assuming things that the text does not say. Um, so as we go through, hopefully some of the misconceptions that surround this passage can be um, alleviated. Uh, but yeah, let's look at this. So uh, first of all, um, I do wonder, um, and I don't know if I can prove this one way or the other, but you probably recall if you've been listening to this podcast for a while that I often say that uh, biblical law tends to be directed towards the male. Um, it is, a, you know, the good, the kind of the go-to passage that I often will refer to is the um, prohibition against coveting, the Tenth Commandment, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, of course, that also applies to female, but it simply is male-oriented. And so I don't think that we can say for certain that this law that is oriented from a husband's point of view would not apply to a wife who 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 um, suspects her husband of adultery. Um, that is, in fact, of course, the the situation here is that the the husband suspects that she's been adulterous, and you have the contingency, you know, if she's done it or if if she hasn't, but he thinks she has, right? Like there's, there's a question there. There's no provability. There's no proof. He has no way of knowing for sure whether she's been unfaithful to him. That's kind of the issue. Um, and yeah, I don't see in principle any reason why this would not also apply to the, the husband as well. So I'm not sure that, I think at least, you know, we can't know this for sure, but it's at least possible that this would have been just as applicable to a male suspected of adultery as it would have been to a female. And again, we shouldn't go and assume um, certain uh, freedoms or lack thereof of, of women and men in the ancient Near East um, just blanketly saying that everything was more oppressive towards women or, you know, the, the most... Um, uh, oppressive situation we can think of is is what in fact was the case. No, you don't, you don't know that. We don't know that. Um, uh, women in the Old Testament sometimes have a surprising amount of autonomy from their husbands. I mean, you think of, for example, David's wife Abigail, who we'll uh, um, learn about when we go through First uh, Samuel. So, a couple things to keep in mind there. But yeah, so so what is to be done here? Well. 
the the woman who is suspected of adultery is to be brought before the priest along with a grain offering a tenth of an ephah of barley flour with no frankincense on it it is called this is called a guilt offering of jealousy and um jealousy uh, another thing um that we should keep in mind is that je- the word jealousy in english has a lot of negative connotations and um uh, you know this kind of like seething attitude um, again, if we another thing we have to be careful not to assume into the biblical text. Uh, keep in mind, God is called a jealous God. Again, from the Ten Commandments, we see that. And there, it's simply the attitude of wanting what is rightfully yours, what you actually have a right to want. Like, a husband has a right to want his wife's love and his wife's faithfulness, just like a wife has the right to... to to do that, and so in that sense, um, the way that the the biblical concept of jealousy works, at least in these Old Testament texts, uh, that's what jealousy entails. It's it's not this again this seething attitude of of oh, I'm just I'm gonna check her out, look around every corner, and I'm gonna I'm gonna track her, I'm gonna follow her. You know these like kind of crazy connotations that we often have when we say, oh, this person is jealous. Um, not necessarily. Like when God is called a jealous God, he rightly, um, he rightly is owed the worship of his people. He, he is rightly owed worship from all of creation. And the fact that he cares about that is what the Bible calls his jealousy. Okay, so the, the woman is to be brought to the priest with this guilt offering of quote-unquote jealousy. And... Um, Holy water, that is water that is used in, in the rituals in the, in the tabernacle, is to be combined with dust on the tabernacle floor. And, um, and then her hair is to be un, unbinded, and she holds the grain offering in her hand. And um, the priest pronounces this, if no man has laid with you, you know, be free of this. But if you have gone astray, um, though you are under your husband, under your husband's authority is a, is a bit of a, um, uh, of a way of clarifying in, in, in English, but though you are under your husband, uh, may the Lord make you a curse. And it says things like make your thigh fall away, which remember how in Genesis we end in the beginning of Exodus, we saw that thigh is a euphemism for posterity, right? Like this is, this is essentially saying, may you be childless. And, um, in fact, that, that is indeed, um, what this 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 curse is um, amounts to, um, and then he's to write the curses uh, in a book or on a scroll, and to wash it off into the water of bitterness. Uh, of exactly how that uh, is to work, I'm not exactly sure. I know that there is an Egyptian spell uh, where um, a curse is written on the inside of a bowl, and then the bowl is the water is agitated in the bowl so that the curse. Um, dissolves into the water, and then a person is made to drink that. Um, I forget what exactly that that spell is for, but it, the method may be similar there. Um, and she is to drink this. Um, now, I'll, again, another important thing to point out here, um, water combined with dust on the floor, combined with, um, you know, um, uh, some kind of writing, um, some kind of writing medium, uh, you have to keep in mind that people, it's, 
that's not a whole lot of di difference between that and what people would have drank anyway. Okay, people are drinking water that by our by our lights would be very undesirable. Um, and so the fact that there is dust in the water from the ground, the holy ground of the tabernacle, um, and the fact that there is, you know, possibly ash or something like that in it is, is not this like, you know, for, for us, we're, we're, we're used to drinking the good stuff, you know, the bottled stuff you get at the store or something like that, or we have purification filters on our tap. This is not how it works, uh, in, in, uh, 1200 BC. Um, so she drinks the water and, um, uh, Jacob Milgram, who is a, an excellent commentator on all things uh, ritual in the Old Testament, this is a Jewish dude. He um he has um uh, an interesting some interesting comments to make on this in his commentary on Numbers. Um, he notes uh, first of all, um, following um, the Rabbi Ramban, uh, that's R A M B A N. <laughs> um, that this is the only case in biblical law where the outcome depends on a miracle. So there is the presumption here that God will um, take care of this, right? That God is the one who will judge if this woman has um, indeed committed adultery. And if she does, then he is the one who will see to the penalty. Um, for people, of course, who object to the biblical text and come to this with skeptical eyes, uh, that should be a relief for you because you don't think anything's going to happen then. So you basically just go through this ordeal and nothing happens. But for those who do read through the eyes of belief and who and who know the God who speaks through these words, um, the punishment for this, if she is guilty, is up to him. It is in his hands. And so the second thing that Milgram um, observes, again, following Ramban, is that um, this actually protects her from death. Because keep in mind, adultery is punishable by death under the law of Moses. And here, um, this is what is to happen to her, right? It's not that under the assumption, it's not even if it's found out, she, like if, if you know, you do this thing and if um, she end, it ends up that she is an adulteress or something, it's revealed and then you go and put her to, get to death. No, she's actually protected from death in this. And so we just need to be careful of what we, uh, what assumptions we impute to the biblical text. So, um, yeah, so you know, if she's innocent, uh, she is free, and and she will conceive children. Um, if she's guilty, um, then um, the the effect of her drinking this, the Lord it says it says in verse uh, twenty four and twenty seven, if she's guilty, she will it will cause bitter pain to her. Um, and um, yeah, so that's uh, that's the law for the for the woman who is suspected of adultery. And I would suspect perhaps the man who is um, who is uh, suspected of, of adultery as well. Next up, we come to the law about Nazarites, the Nazarite vow. This is a vow that is taken that sets apart a particular Israelite as especially holy to the Lord. It can be done for a variety of different purposes. We see it, for example, in Samson's life in the book of Judges, where he is appointed for this special role, but the Lord wants him to remain in this special state of holiness in order to do this. Of course, Samson disregards that, 
But um, yeah, and notably too, we find um, in Acts when Paul eventually makes his way to Jerusalem towards the end, uh, he, he it says that he cut his hair for he was under a vow, which is quite possible that uh, that you know when he went to the temple, which is quite possible that that perhaps Paul had placed himself under some kind of Nazarite vow. Um, but that's the idea. It's a, it's a special um, level of holiness to separate oneself to Yahweh, to separate oneself to the Lord. Now, what is entailed in this? So first of all, basically nothing that comes from the vine. So no grapes, of course, no wine, no vinegar. You've got the fermentation there, but it's, it's so it's more than just not drinking. It's, it's nothing at all, even from the vine. Um, no razor shall touch his head, so he's not to shave his hair. He's not to to cut his hair. Uh, it kind of goes all uh, crazy, um, perhaps naughty. Um, and they, he is also forbidden from going to um, from 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 going near a dead body. Uh, you recall that uh, dead bodies, of course, um, uh, transmit uncleanness. If he does so accidentally, then the cleansing of seven days must happen, um, after which he is to shave his head. And basically, uh, basically it's a do-over. So he, he's on the eighth day, he brings two turtle doves or pigeons, um, for one for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering, to make atonement. Again, there's that idea of cleansing, and, um, and it says to consecrate his head. Uh, there's also a grain offering involved in this, but yeah, the the previous period of the Nazarite vow then is void, and it's it's basically a do-over. Um, I think also here you have an interesting um, statement um, about the touching of the dead body because he sinned concerning the dead body. Now this is kind of a unique use of this term to sin, right? Because usually sin is reserved for moral infractions as opposed to merely mere um, ritual contamination. Here, I think um, you have, we see um, the, I'm a little hesitant to call it the root meaning of the word sin, right? Like words, their meaning is derived from how they're used. Context and usage determines meaning. So to speak of like a basic meaning of a word is a little bit misleading. That said, um, the basic idea behind the concept of of sin in the Old Testament is often said to be something like missing the mark, like you shoot an arrow at a target and you miss it. And so I think here what you have is that it's it's shaded with that kind of meaning here, where uh, he sinned, meaning he went astray from his Nazarite vow. I think that's the way to understand that. Um, so when the vow is eventually over, he goes to the, t the entrance of the tent of meeting with a burnt offering, a one-year-old male lamb, a sin offering, a one, uh, which is a one ewe, also one-year-old, um, as well as a peace offering, one ram with no blemish, a guilt offering plus its drink, uh, and then he, he, uh, its drink offering, and uh, then he shaves his head. His head, his hair is then burnt on the portion of the, of the, um, peace offering sacrifice. And um, and then his portion is taken and uh, given to him as a wave offering. And this is the shoulder, which is, which is, uh, which is to be uh, boiled um, for his, for, uh, for his consumption. This appears to be one of, if not the main way of cooking 
the portion that a worshiper eats, right? You're not going to eat a piece of meat that you've put burned on the altar. That's the Lord's Isha, his offering by fire, his food offering. Um, you're you're going to boil the rest. So that appears to be, that's essentially how the Nazarite vow works, okay? Um, finally, here in number six, we get this uh, priestly blessing. So this is the way that the Lord, that Aaron, the priest, uh, is, is to bless the people of Israel. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So... Uh, and I, and the way that this is summarized, I just love, so they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So this very uh, kind of beautiful uh, liturgy that the that the priest is to re, that the priests are to recite over the people of Israel. Um, interestingly, um, there is a there is a Hebrew inscription. Um, that was found an ancient Hebrew inscription. These are called the uh, Ketef Hinnom, K-E-T-E-F, Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M, silver scrolls. They're little rolled up pieces of silver that functioned as amulets. And um, on the inside of them is inscribed something very, very similar to this priestly blessing here from Numbers chapter 6. So a uh, little, little bonus factoid for you there. Okay, let's look at Proverbs chapter 7. Now, I love Proverbs chapter seven. If you like pretty much anybody, I'm anybody who hears my voice, I almost guarantee you've struggled with lust somewhere in your life. You've struggled with longing to be with someone, longing to have physical intimacy with somebody whom the Lord has not given as your as your husband or your wife. And um and in times when this temptation has been strong for me. Um, one of my best strategies is just to read passages of scripture that speak to that. And um, I think I've mentioned that on on here before. Um, another great one is First Thessalonians chapter four, the very beginning of that chapter. But this this is is also one. And so first here in verse six, we encounter this young man lacking sense. So here's a man, a young man who needs the the son who right who needs to, to um to learn wisdom, but here he's going to be pulled astray. Okay, um, he's he's lacking sense, and, and and so you get this. You know, someone's wisdom is looking out the window and seeing this, and there he goes, and uh, he's among the simple. Right, he has not yet gained wisdom. He's among the youths. He's young. He's lacking sense. And he passes along the street near her corner. So he goes near. He's not fleeing temptation. He's going near to it. He's taking the road that goes to her house. And he's doing it in evening when people are not going to see him. Okay, Those of us who have struggled with lust know that the, the secrecy, right, the hiding. And, um, and the woman comes and welcomes him. And... Um, it's interesting because everything, like, you know, if you're having a, a temptation uh, to look at something you shouldn't or to think of something you shouldn't, right? And you start reading this, like, everything seems really good. And that's how that temptation feels, right? Like, you're not tempted towards something that is repulsive towards you. And, like, 
it, it, it's kind of like, all right, let's party here, right? She she's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay in the at home. Um, she lies in wait for him. She goes to him. Okay, think about how flattering that is for this young man. She seizes him. She kisses him, and and uh, and and she starts sweet talking him. Right? I've I've paid my vows. I've offered my sacrifices, um, and you know all all my God stuff is taken care of. Um, and notice the cheap use of sacrifice by somebody who's willing to do this. Um, now I've come out to meet you to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. And then she describes, she's prepared her place. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt, right? These, these beautiful Egyptian fabrics. My bed is perfumed um, with aloes and myrrh and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. And you're reading this, you're like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, that's exactly what I want when I'm struggling with this, right? Like, my husband is not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. He's he's gone to the full moon. Like, we're not even going to be caught, okay? And and then the voice of wisdom starts summarizing this. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. And then here is where it takes a hard left into exactly what you get yourself into when you give into this temptation. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. Think about what that feels like, right? To have your or internal organ pierced with, a, with an arrow. As a bird rushes into its snare, he doesn't know that this will cost him his life. And then this this final exhortation, right? So it's like, how attractive does that seem now? Does this scenario seem now? This is this is the outcome of sin. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. He's calling out to all sons out there because this is a hugely, dare I say, almost universal temptation. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You can see why that's part of my strategy, right? By the time you're through that proverb, your mind is somewhere else. Your mind is, is, is back in the land of making sense, of, of not forfeiting your inheritance, your inheritance for a bowl of lentil stew. Um, a little Esau action there. Shout out to to Esau. All right, so that's Proverbs seven. Uh, can you tell I'm I'm into that? It's helped me zillions of times. Um, okay, let's look at Luke chapter two, verses one through twenty. So here now um, we've we've seen the uh, the the the. The birth of John the Baptist has has taken place. He's grown strong and has been in the wilderness, and then and then uh, it kind of goes back in time a little bit, right? Because John just grew up in the span of a verse. And in those days, this decree went out. So it's from Caesar Augustus. So Augustus is the uh, is the Roman emperor, and um, and the entire world needs to be all the world, right? That's all the Roman Empire needs to be registered. Um, and it even identifies this as the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so uh, 
Joseph, uh, being of the line of David, goes back to um, to to has to go down to Bethlehem because he's living in the town of Nazareth, but he needs to go to the city of David because of his lineage, and um, he goes to register with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and we know what that's all about already, right? Luke's already told us, and while they're there, it comes time for her to give birth, and just in the span of a few words. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, okay, very normal thing, right, for newborn baby, and laid him in a manger, that is a a feeding trough, a trough for the feeding of of, um, animals because there was no place for them in the inn. Um, Now, um, what exactly is going on there? It's a little, the the language is a little bit ambiguous. Um, It's probably not that, you know, they go to the first century holiday inn or something and and the innkeeper's like no room but we got room in the animals no like there's just uh the you know everybody is 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 coming back to their hometowns thing is crowded and the word that is actually translated in here probably means nothing much more than a guest room so where where they were planning on staying there ended up actually just being no room for them now the 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 fact that he's placed in a manger of course you know, indicates that they're in an animal, um, an animal room. Um, but, uh, but the, 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 there's the, the two main options are that this is some kind of private house, um, with perhaps with a relative or that, um, uh, this is some kind of, uh, public shelter that travelers could just stay at. And, but either way, the idea is pretty clear that he is Jesus is born in extremely humble circumstances, um, and he's laid in a feeding trough for animals. Um, uh, the Son of God, uh, born into into those kinds of circumstances. Um, yeah, so um, the the manger scene is probably a little bit overdone, right? Where it's just this kind of like uh, roof with three walls and. It, it may just as well have been uh, the downstairs of a, of a house where, you know, people lived upstairs and animals were, were kept downstairs. It's hard to tell. But either way, extremely humble circumstances for the birth of the Son of God. And, um, and then in the same region, we're told, there are shepherds out in the field and they're keeping watch over their flock. And the angel of the Lord appears to them. His glory, the glory shines around him. Um, and, and they are struck with fear. Notice the, the fear that everybody encounters when they see angels in the book of Luke, right? Like an angel is not this soft, fluffy little baby who flies around with wings and shoots people and makes them fall in love or something like that, right? These are beings who inspire fear every time people see them. Um, these are mighty, mighty beings, and they come with good news. They come with great joy because now in the city of David, a savior, Christ the Lord has been born. And notice that connection again between the Christ, the king, this kingly title and salvation. We saw this also in chapter one, remember in, in Zechariah's, um, his, what, what he prophesies. Um, uh, you see it in, you know, this, this, uh, verse 69, raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. And then again, in, in, in verse 77, um, the knowledge of salvation is given to people in the forgiveness of sins. 
Uh, so that connection, uh, the Davidic king who is going to bring salvation, and that salvation will entail forgiveness of sins. Uh, remarkable how similar that is to the some of the themes that Matthew puts into the uh, early accounts of Jesus's um, well, the accounts of Jesus' birth and and uh, and the, the the vision that um, that Joseph has, um, and they are given. This will be a sign to you, right? You're going to go and you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and that's going to be him. And after telling them about that extremely humble, extremely um, poor baby, suddenly. The entire heavens are uh, the entire this multitude of heavenly host appears, not just the one angel, right? But now a huge multitude, an army of them. That's the heavenly host, the heavenly army ap- appears, praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." All right, that's it for today. I hope you got a lot out of that. I sure do enjoy sharing this with you. So until tomorrow, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.